Welcome to the Lighthouse Podcast, a resource created by Lighthouse Family Retreat to strengthen families living through childhood cancer. You'll hear stories from families, educational information on childhood cancer, and most importantly, we will be there to encourage your family during your journey. Hey, it's great to be back here with all of you on the podcast. Sadly, retreat season is over, but there's still a lot of exciting stuff happening at Lighthouse, including a mm-hmm. one-day retreat in just a couple of weeks right here in Atlanta that's going to be super fun. That's right, right here in Atlanta. Yes. Yeah, it's not too far from the office. It's pretty exciting. So yes, we'll making a short drive over to Buford, Georgia. That's right, 12 Stone Church. We're going to meet up some with some families, some great volunteers, some new volunteers. We're excited about that for a day of fun and connection with these families. And now that summer is officially behind, us it is now fall i can tell it feels like it mm-hmm. we're heading into the holiday season it's time to think about christmas which some of us do all the time but we've got advent calendars going out to the families we served this year in just a few weeks which is super fun we'll also have them for sale on our website for volunteers who want to buy one as well as a lot of our merch which makes a great christmas present stocking stuffer it also supports families living through childhood cancer that's right some of that merch is perfect for this fall weather yes it is yes it is we just came back from the mountains which was even cooler and lovelier up there. Mm-hmm. That's coming our way. The trees, the leaves are changing. Christy, the families you mentioned, that's why we're here. That's why we do what we do. And today we actually have a conversation to share with you that we had with one of those families that we served on two of our retreats. So you're about to meet Scott and Tess Ryder, a really great couple from Flint, Michigan. So Scott's an IT project manager, and Tess, she previously worked in engineering and now is a stay-at-home mom to their children. Sophia, who's nine, and eight-year-old Nora, their son Zeke, who's four, and Joanna, who's three years old, and then their littlest one, that's right, I'm not done yet, (laughs) is Scotty, who's five months old. And I can only imagine how full their lives have been the last few years with five kids, one of them undergoing cancer treatment. Their oldest daughter, Sophia, she was diagnosed with brain cancer back in 2014, underwent various surgeries, radiation, chemo, the whole thing. Her parents are gonna share with us her story. But I'm really thankful to share that Sophia is currently cancer-free, amen, and has been for the last three and a half years. So let's listen in on their story. Hey, Scott and Tess, welcome to the Lighthouse Podcast. We're glad to have you guys. Uh, hey, for context for everybody, um, let's go back to the beginning. Let's tell a little bit of your story, because uh, you guys have a little bit of a longer one with a lot of different steps to it. So how did things start? With Sophia, and then, and when did something? When did you guys know something was wrong? And then, what was the what was the diagnosis? So yeah, I'll start. So we've been in this for uh, seven years now. Um, it'll be eight in January. Um, so and it's been busy the whole time, pretty much. <laughs> so so Sophia was first diagnosed in January of 2014 um, with an ependymoma. Uh, that's brain cancer. Um, it was in the base of her skull and, um, the major issue is that it was blocking spinal fluid, um, from traveling up and down the spine to the brain and all of that, which really was causing her symptoms and Tess can go into it a little bit more, but, um, so it was a gradual process of her getting more sick, having more nausea, starting to have balance issues, um, kind of was masked a little bit. Um, so actually we were just talking in the first time she ever threw up like 
inexplicably was on Halloween in 2013. And I had just had our second baby, Nora. She was born in September. And then in October on Halloween was the first time she threw up and we had like, you know, a big trunk or treat. And I remember telling her she threw up. She's just acting weird. She's not running a fever. Nothing's wrong. She's, you know, going around doing her thing, but that was really weird. Um, and it kind of just like started there and then progressed. She was, I remember in November, you know, going to church and just telling the nursery workers, she's just not herself. I don't know what's wrong. She's just, I don't know what's wrong. She's not feeling well. She's just not herself. She never ran fevers. She really, it was just the intermittent nausea and kind of just the something is off and we don't know what it is. And really it kind of climaxed in December. Yeah. Uh, she was super sick in December. We were at the pediatrician every week, every couple of days, you know, it's a virus, it's this, it's that. And then I think we were in the ER or urgent care every weekend in December um, of 2013. Of 2013. She was hospitalized once with some like dehydration and they said it was due to all this constipation. You know, constip- and, and I'm just yeah. like, babies aren't hospitalized with dehydration over constant. Something is, yeah. if this is really constipation, something has caused this. This right. doesn't even make sense. And she's how so, so she's her symptoms all- would get like more, they would increase. So like it just became a, like a random throw up at the beginning and then it was more frequent. And at the time of diagnosis, she was, she had thrown up every day that week. Um, in the morning, um, and then would go on basically her day. And we had said on Friday, you know, she threw up in the morning. I, I went to work and we said, should we do something about this? Well, we had scheduled an MRI, but it was like three weeks off. And, you know, you're, you're so naive before you get into the world of cancer. I didn't even know they had to sedate children for MRI. So I'm like three weeks, you just take her in there and take the picture. I don't understand how this can take three weeks to schedule. Like, let's get on it. So we were three weeks out from an MRI. From, and Through the pediatrician. Th- you know, a scheduled one through the pediatrician. And I said, if she throws up tomorrow, that we, I, we can't live like this. And then the next morning she threw up and there was a little bit of blood in her vomit. Um, and I was like, pack the bags, we're going, this is it. Um, and so we got there and... With her being right right around the 18-month mark, you know, they took her vitals. They were like, the doctor will be in. Well, a nurse came in with paperwork and was like, can you sign these discharge papers? The doctor will be right in to talk to you. And I'm like, I'm not signing any discharge. Why would I sign discharge papers? She's like, well, it's just due to her vaccines. You know, she's just having a mild reaction. And so he'll come in and talk to you and said, I'm not signing anything. She hasn't even had vaccines because she's been so sick. This is not it. I want to talk to the doctor. So the doctor came in and like I said, we were so naive. I was like, I want an MRI. I'm not leaving without an MRI. Well, obviously that's not possible. Just at your local ER for your 18 month old to be, you know, have an MRI that same day. Um, He's like, I cannot do an MRI. And I kind of felt like he was just giving me the runaround. Like, "Ah, I'm not really going to do the MRI. So I was super pushy. I was like, no, I will not leave. I will not leave. I will. We're just not leaving. You will have to escort me out unless I get an MRI. He's like, the best I can do is a CT scan. So they took her back from the CT scan and it came back abnormal. That's all it said. Just abnormal. There was a little extra fluid. And so he's like, well, it's abnormal. 
It's definitely not a large brain tumor, but there is something abnormal. So we're going to ambulance you down to To the children's hospital in Detroit. Um, And so we got the ambulance ride. And when we got there, the neurosurgeons like fellow or whoever, you know, does all the pre-op work for him was like, listen, this is definitely a brain tumor. Just like, I have no idea why they would tell you that, but we can see the shadow. This is presenting just like a brain tumor. So that's how we're going to go. And that was kind of all we knew the first couple of days. And at initial diagnosis, I mean, everything is like just kind of chaos and an emergency (laughs) because it's just like, everything's spinning. And so, um, and on top of that, we had a gigantic snowstorm in Michigan. And so it postponed her surgery another day because no one could get to the hospital. The day she was supposed to have a hospital, the surgery, I saw a nurse skiing down the highway in Detroit on like cross country skis, just coming into work on her snow ski. Wow. (laughs) So it was like, it was really, you know, and you're kind of just like help my child, but there was, so that is a kind of a funny memory in the midst of all the chaos. Once you kind of got your bearings and they done for their tests, what was your understanding that like the, what was the treatment, the initial treatment plan? We kind of had a few bumps in the road. The surgeon had told us, I'm sure it's this kind. I've done this surgery hundreds of times. It's not going to need any type of follow-up treatment. We removed it. She's going to be fine. So we were kind of like on cloud nine about okay, like, this, oh, that's, is it. this is the major part is already done the surgery. And then we go off and live our life. And so a few days after the surgery, you know, we're getting ready to go home. We're packing up. Some young guy comes in and he's like, Hey, are you Sophia's parents yet? And he's like, okay, well, I just wanted to let you know, we're going to start radiation in six weeks. You need to be here at this time. And we're like, what, what are you, what are you talking about? Hold on a second. Like, and so just this random fellow radiologist had to tell us like, oh, I, I didn't realize no one else had been in here. It is cancer. It does require follow-up treatment. Here's this packet, read it and left. So then they, yeah, they gave us these brochures that basically just tell you like all the like negative sides of cancer I mean it was and like a horror it was like reading a horror story like your child could be deaf your child could be blind your child could have permanent hair loss your child could have perm- permanent cognitive disabilities and like you're reading all and it's horrific it really is like you know there's no like explanation there's no compassion there's no stopping you have questions you're just reading this you know six page bifold thing of all the terrible things that could happen to your child and it was like whoa mm-hmm. there was really yeah. no time to like take things in because they did it so poorly right so like a doctor didn't talk to us and prepare us with anything it was just like oops you didn't know and well now you do and here's this stuff and so at that point we were already a little shaken up because we're like, who are these people that do things this poorly? We're like kind of questioning, are we in the right place? Are we going to, are we seeking the right treatment? Um, So we start, we kind of went into research mode at that point, right? Figuring out what to do. Um, And then we got, you know, once the news kind of got out on our social media and through our like family and support group and all of that, Um, we were contacted by, um, a friend of our, um, family in Florida, 
um, who is a radiation oncologist, Julie, um, she told she us about- She was working in pediatric radiation oncology. Right. So she told us about proton radiation and you know we didn't know what that was, right? So then we started learning about what that was. And once we heard about what it was and, and, and researched it and all of that, um, we knew that was what we needed to do because it had, you know, less side effects. There's, you know, a, a lot I of mean, just much better quality of life afterwards. Yeah. And that was one of the things actually Tess um, had thought about is, you know, all, all along the way is like, we want to make sure that the treatments we're giving Sophia fight the cancer, right? Because that's a major goal, but then also are giving her her life still. Like we didn't want to like give her all these experimental things, even up front, they tried to get us on a clinical trial that had no proven benefits or whatever. And so some of our guiding principles along the way is like, we want to make sure that Sophia's quality of life is as high as it can be. And so this proton radiation, um, for ch uh, children that have brain tumors, young children, it give, gives them a lot better of a chance because it, it doesn't impact the surrounding cells as much as traditional radiation does. So with her traditional treatment plan, she would have needed hearing aids. And with the new proton treatment plan, she, her ears barely got any, I mean, they check them once a year, just out of, you know, purely just being safe, but they didn't get any type of dose that would lead to hearing loss. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, even that, like, and when we told our local oncologist, you know, we think we're going to go with that. He's like, I've never heard of that. I just, I don't think I'd trust that. I've never heard of that. So we I'm knew like, well, like pretty early on that, like the Detroit hospital system was not the place for us, um, specifically for Sophia's uh, type of cancer and, and um, diagnosis and, and all of that. So, um, so what happened is we, we found out about proton. We looked up the places that do pediatric proton therapy. And I think there was like maybe a dozen all across the country at that this time. This is eight years ago. Yeah. That's and almost a decade ago. So there was not really anything close to us. Um, there was, I think one in Chicago maybe, but like we there didn't, Indeed. We didn't know, uh, like anybody there, we'd have to like, you know, it's a whole new area and stuff. And so there was a pediatric, um, specialty down in Jacksonville at the university of Florida proton therapy, um, which turns out that's also the place that St. Jude sent their kids to get, uh, proton radiation treatment. Um, so we had found out about that through Julie. And so we decided to take her there for her fault, for her radiation, um, instead of just going with, you know, what was recommended at Detroit. Um, and so, you know, it, like I said, it's all a little bit of a whirlwind because we're like, okay, she's out of surgery. She's feeling a little bit better, but now we need to go to Jacksonville and then live there for two months or three months. And so um, it was a, a whirlwind of things. And you have, so she's still a baby technically, and then you have another baby. Yeah. So Nora was, like four or five months old when we went down to Jacksonville. So we had the 18, 19 and four to five month old oh. and we rented a house. So, so one, we, one thing we decided pretty early also is we wanted to be together as a family as much as possible. Um, I know a lot of cancer families, especially ones who are recently diagnosed now through COVID and all of that cancer is not only you know, a major issue for their kid, but then it's a huge separation and 
uh, all of that on the families. So, um, you know, it really put us, put it in perspective for us when we went on our last lighthouse retreat, um, because all of, most of those people were being diagnosed through COVID. And so their treatments and what they had to, you know, be apart from their spouses and the rest of their family, it was a lot different than what we got to do when we were diagnosed with, when Sophia was diagnosed for the first time. So we decided to travel and do everything as a family as much as possible. So we took, you know, me and Tess and the two kids, um, went down and, and lived in Jacksonville and rented a house for, you know, two months um, while we did her first radiation because we wanted to all be together. So. so you've mentioned a couple times the first time you went through treatment. So you went through this first round and then you were, film, remind me, you were off treatment for a while. Two years. Yeah. So, so she was diagnosed in 2014, um, surgery and then radiation for six weeks. And then after that, she had clear scans um, all the way until May of 2016. Um, and that's when, you know, her first reoccurrence happened. Um, and so, you know, that was a big middle of a big life transition for us. We were moving from Michigan back, or excuse me, from Atlanta back to Michigan, um, like the next week. And so we that just was just told our family that we were pregnant with our third so that was just like an MRI. It was on the calendar. Everything had been clear to then. So we're we like, were, we just need to check the box and get back to Michigan. We were eating at a Mexican restaurant that when they night, called yeah. us because we were done and we were celebrating. We're moving. My mom was flying in the next day. And oh, what's, why is the hospital? Maybe we left a charger or something there. Mm-hmm. And I answer it and it was, <laughs> I hate to have to tell you this, but something showed up on the MRI and I just wanted to let you guys know. And so that was her first reoccurrence. And so that like changed everything, right? We we had all these plans and then we needed to get her more treatment and figure out what that meant. So then her first reoccurrence had another surgery and another round of proton uh, therapy, proton radiation. Um, And we did that at St. through St. Jude. At at St. Jude. So St. Jude had finished their um, proton uh, facility during, you know, the, the gap between her original diagnosis and her first reoccurrence. So she was able to do her second radiation right at St. Jude. So the four of us again moved over to Memphis um, and lived there the summer of 2016 while she had her um, second round of proton radiation. And being a Michigander and being pregnant in Memphis was a lot. <laughs> in the the summertime yes triple digits for like a whole week and I was sure like I'm just not gonna make it yeah bless how does it um how does it hit you differently like on an emotional scale with a reoccurrence um I'll speak for me first of all is like while you're having clear scans there's a lot of worry so especially like when it comes time to like having the MRI and getting to MRI day and then waiting for the results, there's like a constant um, worry about, well, what's going to happen if it comes back? So, so that's kind of always on your mind. And then um, when you get the news, I mean, obviously it's just a big shock, but at a reoccurrence, it's different than original diagnosis because you know more, right? So we've been through treatment. We've met other people, um, that have cancer. And, you know, originally I had this 
perspective, like, well, I had a lot of faith in the medical industry, first of all. And so, you know, that they're going to just tell us what to do. We do those things and then we go off and live our lives. But we found out right when, when Detroit kind of treated us, uh, you know, poorly um, and we kind of started our self-directed care at that point um, that, you know, it's, there's, there's not always a clear answer. And so, so when you get the, um, reoccurrence being diagnosed, then you just know more, you've connected to families where it's not always great news. Um, and so there's more, I think, concern, at least for me at that time, um, because I know like, it's not always, you know, an easy just treatment and then you go on and live your life. Right. Um, so it hit me harder each time. Um, and we've only talked about the first reoccurrence this so far, but, um, yeah, it is more difficult because you just have learned more along the way and it's, um, you know, you're, um, just taking it harder, I think, because of what you've been through. I think all the knowledge you get along the way, you realize our odds are really scary at a recurrence and you know, I mean, I was already up to date on what all was available. I knew how little was available for a recurrence. I knew all the numbers, I knew all the stats and it's a lot harder the second time around. And I think especially with Nora being older, I had a very defining moment of like grieving what she could lose if, you know, something happened. And that was like a whole nother level of, um, you know, processing and grieving a recurrence was now we have, you know, these two best friends, you know, they're, what were they three and four mm-hmm. and like, how are we going to survive this loss? Um, and so it was a lot harder the second time. And I think even harder the third time, you yeah. So is it three, the third recurrence is that, or there's there more than that? So, so she's, she's had uh, two recurrences. So it came back in 2016 and then it came back again in 2018. Um, And it's the same spot every time, basically like a very solid pattern, same spot, same growth pattern, same month, May, in May. um, May of 2018. So, so it was, there was a pattern that started to evolve. So she was diagnosed. She was cancer free for two years, then had a reoccurrence. She had a reoccurrence. She was cancer free for two years, then had another reoccurrence. And so in 2018 at St. Jude is when they told us um, that this was terminal and that it was, you know, most likely going to take her life. And so, and it's you know, funny because you can even, I mean, don't you remember Dr. Merchant walking through and like, we both instantly looked at each other, like something's off. Yeah. So they walked into the room and said, we just, we need to, you know, show you the scans. And so, um, he showed us the scan, told us it was back. And at the second reoccurrence, it's like a whole, it's a world of unknowns because, um, we've tried the, you know, quote unquote proven, um, treatments for ependymoma and it still is coming back. So what do we do? Um, so we asked them, you know, what do we do? And he said, you just need to research and find, I mean, he said, you guys have done an amazing job thus far of finding the right treatment for her. I think you could find something better than I can tell you. So he He said, said, I do know of one here at St. Jude and we'll set you up an appointment, but you guys, you do good research, go research. 
research. So he said, you know, research and find the clinical trials and options that you have, uh, you know, available for Sophia. And so we met with the Diet St. Jude. And it was so new in the clinical trial and it's, it was a chemo based, so it wasn't proven. Um, Because that's a lot of the issue with, you know, these brain tumors is this, you know, blood brain barrier is that your body is going to protect your brain at all costs. So a lot of the medication you put into your body never reaches the tumors and never reaches your brain because your body recognizes that as something harmful and doesn't let it get there. So a lot of chemos just do not work for her type of cancer. And it was a chemo base and we were just very leery about that. Yeah. And so we, you know, we kept it on the list or whatever, but we knew we needed to research other things. And so um, we, you know, made an appointment at U of M, um, Ann Arbor, um, here in Michigan yeah, to see what they had available or knew of, um, what we knew we needed to have surgery because for ependymoma surgery is like the must have, and you always do that up front and then they need to follow it up with something. And so we were kind of trying to figure out what the something was. Um, and then we ran into no one really wanted to do surgery because at that point it's not curative. It's just quality of life. And why are we going to open her up to infection and all these things if it's not really going to help her in the long run? And we're like, I, we just don't understand that because she is asymptomatic. There's absolutely nothing wrong with her. If doing a surgery gives her another six months, why would we not? Yeah. So, so that was really hard for us. That was really hard. Um, it, so we were sitting there with a surgeon, you know, who could do the surgery and, and he just wasn't willing to do the surgery because there wasn't anything to follow it up with. So, um, you know, that it was super frustrating because we're knowing she, we know she needs treatment, but nobody would treat her. Um, and we're just, you know, time is against us, right? If, if nobody's going to treat her, of course, this is going to get bigger. And of course it's going to um, start being a major problem and, and, you know, she's not going to be asymptomatic forever. Yeah. And so, um, so we looked into a clinical trial, I think out of Portland, um, we looked at, um, a clinical trial that we had heard of out of Atlanta and Pittsburgh, we looked at the Pittsburgh vaccine trial. Yeah. And, and I guess one thing that we, you know, found along the way that has really helped is, um, for us, we were able to join a Facebook group um, for other families who have had kids or have kids with ependymomas. And so there's a lot of good information shared in people who have had your specific diagnosis and specific cancer. Um, you know, that's kind of the benefit of, you know, leukemia patients and stuff, right? Is there's been a lot that's been proven. And so um, they can, you know, have, you um, they know what to do, right? What the ABCs are of, of leukemia. And so um, ependymoma is a bit more rare. And so from hospital to hospital, they don't see as many, but we were able to connect with families who were in the same boat as us. So we really could learn about a lot of treatment options because they've, they've options. already done some research. So we found out about the one out of Atlanta and Augusta um, Georgia and, and found out that families had been having really good success with it. It was easily tolerated. I mean, you know, it wasn't curing anybody, but it was certainly slowing growth and it was very easy to tolerate. And I'm, we both were like, this is what we're looking for. You know, um, we, we're, we're, I don't think a cure was ever on the table for us. That wasn't something that crossed our minds. We were just like, we want to 
keep her feeling well as long as we can. Yep. Once they told us it was terminal, you know, Tess and I had talked about it and said, well, if it's terminal, we're not going to just subject her to all of these very experimental treatments that are going to be super harsh on her body and may or may not be effective. Um, just cause that was a choice that we made for her. We want her, I mean, I, and this isn't for everyone. This is just for us, but I felt like it was very selfish of me to want to keep her here regardless of the cost. I just want her here no matter what, like, no, I want her to enjoy her life and, you know, have a fulfilling life. And that's not going to happen if, you know, the last six months of her life, she's just constantly sick in hospital. And it's We're dragging it her, out, wearing down on her body, like at a, you know, rapid pace mm-hmm. or whatever. So, so that was one of our, um, our guiding um, principles in finding her next treatment is that, you know, we wanted it to be tolerable to be, to have some sort of um, quality of life was our only priority and some sort of proof that it has been effective at, for some period of time. Right. And part of quality of life for us was staying by family Mm -hmm. because the one in, I think you said Portland had some success, but it would require us to be out there for long periods of time. And we, and if she's terminal, we're not about to take her away for three, six months that could potentially be, you know, the last three to six months of her life. Right. Um, take her away from family, take her away from the things that she wants to be doing and going to school and going to church and all of that stuff. So those are all the the factors that we kind of put into figuring out what treatment was best for Sophia at the time. And so we decided on the endoximod um, trial out of Atlanta, um, which is an immunotherapy uh, and chemotherapy combination. So the immunotherapy is, is the experimental drug, which is um, trying to penetrate that um, blood-brain uh, barrier and and get the body to be able to fight against that cancer, uh, and the chemo is to kind of just spur that into action. So the I don't know if you want to know this, but the thought process behind it is they know that ependymoma hijacks a certain protein um, that is found in pregnant women that keeps your body from attacking the, you know, growing baby and ependymomas hijack that. And they keep, they use that to keep the body from attacking the cancer cells. So it's a beta, it's a form of a beta blocker that stops the body from making that protein so that ependymoma can't hide from your immune system. And it's able to let the body attack it. And then at once a month, every 28 days, she takes a regular neoplasm pulse, which is just like, you know, a regular brain tumor chemotherapy chemotherapy and hopes that with now the defense is down, this chemotherapy can get through and the body will recognize this foreign object and hopefully kill it off by itself. Yeah. So, um, so that's the experimental part of it. And so being a clinical trial, there's certain rules and regulations around clinical trials. So we, um, in order to be able to enroll her in that, we would need to be in the, uh, in the doctor's office for them to give medication. Um, and so that would have to occur every 28 days. Um, so we, you know, wanted to keep her in Michigan and we said, okay, if we can put her on this trial, but keep her in Michigan and just have to travel to Atlanta every 28 days, then that is a cost we're willing to, to, you know, to, to do. Um, and so, 
Um, we would, you know, fly in for a day or two, um, get the new medication, do some labs every three months, get an MRI. Um, and that was kind of just our new routine at that point. So, so in 2018, um, in May of 2018, we enrolled her in this clinical trial and she's been on it ever since. Um, and so now she's three and a half years, which is the longest gap that she, or the longest period she's ever had of being cancer free. She's passed that two year mark, which was the pattern. Um, so, you know, we're seeing great results in Sophia that we were not expecting and at all. To be honest, the doctors did. I mean, there's no one like her on this trial. No one else has lasted this long. No one else has not had growth. And so they're have even told us, we don't know what to do. We've not had someone with this type of success. So, so we kind of have an open dialogue about what we, how we want to proceed. And I think just recently we. Yeah. So the clinical trial itself um, had a standard time period of treatment for two years. And then you see how that's going. And there was an optional one year that was built into the trial to say, if it's, if it's working, you just keep it up for another year. And that was going to be their test um, time period. So clinical trials, right, is to figure out if it's working to get some results and evaluate those for some future treatment for other kids. And so, you know, she hit that two-year mark. Um, it, the, the trial itself actually ended, which was another spiral of a situation. <laughs> you know, we got a call from the doctor and they're like, well, the clinical trial is ending they and were then, closing it so that they could, you know, report the data. It had done great. They wanted to close it, close the phase one and move to phase two. Well, we're phase one. That means it's closed on us. So yeah, we were so in our mind, spiraling. In our mind, she's, you know, been cancer free ever since she started the trial. Why would they stop the trial? Is it going to mean she's going to have to get off this medication now because they're closing the trial? And so it sent us into a little bit of a uh, spiral on figuring out what that situation looked like. And but then the it turned out to there is something built into the process for whenever that happens. It's called compassionate usage, where they continue to give you the medication that you are on um, for the trial if it's been working for you. And so, um, so she went on that and, and really that's how she's still been on that medication since then. And I definitely had a moment when that trial closed and I'm like, oh my gosh. And, you know, I'm praying, Lord, just let us, can you just keep it open? And it was like very distinct. The Lord talking to me, do you trust me or do you trust the medication? And so that was like, really like a head I had to come to, like, am I trusting God to sustain us? Or am I putting all of my trust in this medication? And so, you know, I had just had to give it to him and say, okay, Lord, I trust you. And it actually ended up being really wonderful that it closed because we weren't confined to all the rigid schedule of a clinical trial. Now we're free to not travel every month and we're free to get care here. And it was like, wow, Lord, that was the best thing that could have happened. I can't even believe I was worried about that. Yeah. Um, and, so and now, I mean, it is so, such a simple routine we're on now. Yeah. So now we actually were able to work with um, the company that produces the medication and our local hospital at U of M Ann Arbor um, to get the medication switched to be able to be dosed out of Ann Arbor. So there's no required travel down to Atlanta at all. And now it also opens it up for any, but any kids who might want to take that medication out of Ann Arbor 
Um, so it, you know, as open doors that weren't, that weren't open before. Yeah, so now Ann Arbor is like, um, a verified producer of that medicine so they can give it to anyone. Whereas before we went there, they had never even heard of it. When mm-hmm. we talked to, they were like, we've never heard of that. Um, so, I mean, that's just something like amazing. The Lord worked out that like, not only does it make our life easier, it can potentially help so many other lives yeah. with it being available out of Ann Arbor. So listening to you talk, I'm just, I mean, we hear this from parents all the time, but it seems you guys are like next level, the amount of research and the amount of advocating and to have a doctor say to you, well, you should go look for something that might work to gives me like, oh my gosh, that's such pressure. And you did such a great job. I mean, you've really advocated for her and for your family that you set this is what's important. This is what's important. This is what's important. What, um, what would you share for other families that are finding themselves like kind of lost? Like, okay, I, it looks like I'm going to have to do some of this work. I'm going to have to make some tough decisions. What are some just things that you would tell them to keep in mind? I think that they need to, it really is, you know, based on what are your, what are your specific priorities? What are the most important things to you? If having your kid here at all cost is it look, you know, that's your top priority. Keep that in mind with every decision you make. And that's a great, I mean, that wasn't our priority, but that's still a really great priority. I think figuring out for yourself and for your spouse and your child, what your priorities are, and then letting those drive your decisions really is the most important thing. Yeah. So having some sort of focus on, or some sort of lens that you can look at making these decisions through, right? Versus just taking the first thing that's available or trusting your doctor just because they said to do just because X, they're y, a doctor. Z, right? Um, and, you know, and not to say that we don't trust doctors, oh, yes. but it, really the amount of knowledge that's out there for appendomomas, I mean, we've just found that Unfortunately, there's not a lot of expertise across hospitals and all of that stuff. So, And it definitely varies as you get from cancer to cancer. Like that cannot be said of like leukemias. I mean, they have it down to an exact science of what to do at every turn. So I, I guess it's just a couple of things about one, yeah, finding your focus. And then two, really just understanding where you're at and um, just, you know, finding people that are similar to you. So like social uh, media and all of that is, is a good resource these days. I'm sure there's Facebook groups for a lot of different types of diagnoses. Um, but there's just a lot out there on the internet. There's um, government clinical trial websites and stuff like that. So there's just a lot at your fingertips. Um, and I think that you, you have to take a minute to like breathe, right? So like that like day one, somebody's not going to be in the mindset of like figuring out what all to do and research all of these things or whatever. So you kind of have to breathe a little bit. And then um, like Tess said, really just have some, some focus and priority on, on the types of decisions you want to make. Um, and then it's just reaching out to your network if you need help. Right. So like, uh, and being willing to take um, advice from other people, but to also like, measure that against how you want to do things. So like, um, there's going to be people that like 
send you all these vi- vitamin regimens or all of these like crazy things that they're like, Oh, it's going to cure cancer. You just, <laughs> you might just hear it and just have to ignore it. Um, yeah, because and- most of the people come at it from a place of truly wanting to help. They yeah. just don't know. And I'm not ever going to educate them. If I'm rude to them the first time, they're just offering me what little advice they have. So it's, yeah, so it's looking at it through a lens of like being realistic on those kinds of things. Um, and uh, uh, just being willing to, I guess, put in the work and do the research. Um, and if you need help, there's like other families that have been through this and it's just finding those people. And yeah, I mean, the um, Facebook group that we joined has been like invaluable mm-hmm. because even when they put out new research, if there's something one of us in the group doesn't understand, hey, do you guys know what these number means? Someone always knows there's someone who's going to figure it out. And I mean, that's just so invaluable. What does this, this, uh, this is on my MRI report. Does anybody know what this verbiage means? I mean, just the amount of help we've gotten from our Facebook group has just. You guys have had a, um, just such a long journey. Um, and just the, the years that, that, that you guys have endured of all the different occurrences and then raising a family through all of that, having multiple more kids through it. Um, it's just incredible. But through your, through your story, a couple of times you shared about your faith. What role has your faith played in this whole journey of not just childhood cancer, but raising and having a family throughout the entire process? Yeah, I'll start. And then Tess has some thoughts, I'm sure, on this. But for me, obviously, it adds stability um, because, like, the Lord is our rock, right? And so um, being able to um, pray and cast all my cares, which are a lot of cares some days, (laughs) it's a little bit. But other days when it's MRI time, those are big concerns. Being able to pray and rely on the Lord um, at any time is a must have, um, for me to keep some mental sanity and, and all of that. Um, but then also one thing that I've just learned is the community that, um, God has put around us through our faith. I mean, our church has been amazing. They not only did things like fundraisers or whatever, but I mean, we've had prayer services and we've had, we've had anointing Sophia with oil, um, when she's had her reoccurrences and everything like that, um, all of that God has put around us. Um, and we couldn't have done any of that on our own, right? Like you, you know, you might have your neighborhood and your friends and all of that, but only God can design, um, a community like the body of believers, um, that we've been able to have around us all along the way, starting from, the church in Jacksonville that when we got there, they filled up our car with diapers and snacks and, snacks and just bathed us in prayer to um, the church that we you know went to when we were in Memphis and then our home church here in Michigan. I mean, the, the body of believers is much bigger than just your local church. And that's something that the Lord has shown me through this all or whatever is that, um, you know, there's nothing that could create that outside of, in my opinion, um, the the Lord and the lo- and the love uh, of Jesus Christ. So. I mean, during the last um, the last recurrence, do you remember our assistant pastor was like, "Hey, if you guys see me outside your house, I'm just 
driving by every day and praying over your family. So if you see me out there, I'm just praying. No need to come out. And then like, even when I think about back to like her first diagnosis, like all of the things God had to weave together to get us to where we are, like your uncle moving from Michigan to Florida, going to the church he goes to, Julie, the radiation oncologist, going to the church she goes to, them getting connected at a big church so that one day she could tell us, hey, there's this thing called proton radiation. I really think this is what you guys should do. Only God can put all of those pieces together to make things work out for our good because God is good even in cancer. And it's not because he takes it away or because he has us miss out on pain, but because he can take all that and weave it into something beautiful and give us joy and great memories of living in Jacksonville when we should, you know, be the worst time ever. We're like, hey, we really, you know, enjoyed being in Jacksonville for that. Or we really enjoyed living in Memphis for that summer. And it's just all of these intricate details that only God could be weaving together since the beginning of time to bring together our story. I mean, there's Julie. And then, you know, even we prayed so hard about getting pregnant after we, you know, had the two girls, you know, is it time? Should we do it? It's just going to be another baby we have to take to clinic or whatever, you know, we reached the two year mark and decided to try and got pregnant. And then just a few months later, she had a recurrence and it was like, Lord, we prayed about this. Why would you let this happen? Like, I don't want to be pregnant right now. I want to focus on the ones I do have. And it ended up being such a blessing. Our girls loved, you know, waiting for him, feeling him kick. They just told everyone around the hospital about their brother. I mean, it was just such the most wonderful distraction, but had I planned it, I certainly wouldn't have planned (laughs) on being pregnant in Memphis while my daughter had cancer for a second time, but God knew that's what he needed. I just see step after step after step of all these tiny little details that he weaves together to make such a beautiful story. One that we can look back on and say, there was some really good things about it. That's, that is amazing. That's um, beautiful is a great word. Um, thank you for sharing that about your faith. Um, and then thanks for sharing your story with us and your journey. It's, um, it's been a long road, but it, I'm just encouraged by the last three and a half years. Um, that's just exciting to hear that, you know, at least for now, the, the rhythm was broken uh, of that two year mark. And so we're just going to continue to pray that it stays that way. Um, but just grateful for the story. And I know others that are listening, um, you know, there's a part of your story that's encouraging to them. And so we really appreciate you guys sharing it. Yeah. That's kind of like, um, right now it's like the most normal almost that we've had in our lives. And it is, it's, this um, is definitely the most normal. And, and what we were expecting after that, um, you know, terminal prognosis is like, we have a short period of time. Let's cram it all in. Let's give Sophia the best life that she's going to have and have the most memories with her. And then, you know, God kept, God keeps extending that time more and more. So now she's a normal nine-year-old kid that plays flag football (laughs) and has friends at school and, you know, little nine-year-old problems that we get to deal with. Um, And she takes medication and just lives her life. I mean, nobody would know anything about her unless we told her. I mean, we've told people like, yeah, she was on hospice and like their mouth drops, like what? And I mean, I think even just like things like that 
are like almost so in the background, we forget like how incredible, like she was on hospice and she got to get released from hospice. Like yeah. that's a miracle. Yeah. And so, and like, I, I mean, I say it all the time um, is like every day with her is a miracle and it just keeps things in perspective um, that, you know, we can make it through our life's little problems. And of course we're going to have little things, right. Because life is just that that's what it is, but um, it's really given us a focus on um, really just not taking for granted the little things um, and just enjoying uh, what God has given us. I would say I'm probably outside of like cancer related things, like less stressed than I ever have been in my life. Cause it's like, well, if it's not terminal cancer, is it really that bad? Oh, right. That's good. Yeah, right. 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 Yeah. Nothing. Right. And Great nothing perspective. Else. <laughs> Well, again, thank you guys. We really appreciate it. And again, I know I know our listeners are gonna are really gonna appreciate hearing from you guys. So, thank you guys so much. Hey, what a wonderful family! I think the thing for me that stands out the most about the Ryder family is just their deep faith and desire to share what Jesus has uh, has just done in their lives, and uh, and just God's goodness, even in the midst of what really is just a hard, hard diagnosis and prognosis. I mean, their their faith is such an encouragement to me, and we hope it was encouraging to you listening today as well. We're really thankful that we get to share these stories of hope, hope in God with you. So keep listening, and we'll keep bringing them to you. That's right. We'll catch you next week on the next episode.